I recently had a rare opportunity to sit down with Paul McDonald, who is the Chief Investment Officer and a Portfolio Manager at Harvest ETFs. If you are a watcher of BNN Bloomberg, you might recognize Paul as a regular contributor on that show. Now, this type of thing doesn't really happen every day. When you think about it, these CIOs, the Chief Investment Officers, they truly are the quarterbacks of an investment team. They're responsible for establishing the overall direction of an investment firm, uh, nailing down the philosophy, they um, lay out the structure of where these teams are gonna work. At the end of the day, I guess you would say these people are accountable to the success or the failure of an investment firm. They are knowledgeable, knowledgeable people. When I was working as a portfolio manager, every single time, without exception, when I would come out of a meeting with a chief investment officer, I would come out a better advisor and I would also come out a better investor. I've chosen to break this interview down into two different segments. We cover off a whole lot of topics and this isn't sort of surface stuff. This is really a good, solid, deep information just to make it a little bit more digestible. I assure you that by watching this video, you will gain insight and you will become a more informed investor by following through, hearing what Paul has to say. So let's start by taking a look at part one of the interview. Thank you to the sponsor for this video, Harvest ETFs. For more information, please check out the link in the description below. Paul, welcome to the channel. It is so nice to have you on board here. And as I said uh, briefly, sort of in my introduction to the session here today, having um, a, an actual chief investment officer on, on to per, you know, share insights and allow me to pick your brain is so valuable. And when I was a portfolio manager, I always look forward to sessions like this. Uh, so I really appreciate you um, putting the time aside to uh, to come and share with us. I wanna get right into things here and I wanna start sort of with a general top-down view, sort of a state of the union, if you will. Um, obviously, 2022 has been challenging out there. A lot of investors, I'm thinking, are worried. Um, when I look at the things I look at as an investor uh, to sort of gauge where we are right now, um, I don't see any real clear indication. Uh, there's a lot of conflicting information out there. I wanna sort of just start off with the big issue here so far in 2022, and, and I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it. Um, I'm just gonna say inflation. So obviously it has been roaring this year, uh, taking us back decades in some cases. The central banks around the world, the US Fed, uh, Bank of Canada here, um, are doing what they can to try and bring inflation down. So uh, what are your thoughts, Paul, on just, are they doing enough, are they doing too much, et cetera? I'm really curious to hear what you think um, along those lines. Uh, well, thanks, Mark. And again, thank you for having me uh, on the show today. And uh, so just to take a quick step back, when we are, think about the, the markets coming into 2022, you know, we already had inflationary pressures, you know, rearing their heads. And we knew that uh, interest rates were generally going to be tracking higher. And so uh, there's been some exogenous events, of course, things like the war in uh, Ukraine and supply chain issues that has really exacerbated some of these uh, inflationary pressures. And of course, the the key drivers of the, the market in the current environment uh, is yes, inflationary pressures, but that's leading into expectations for interest rates to continue to trend higher, which uh, with the goal of, of taming some of the, the inflation. Uh, and so to your question, when I look and talk to our analysts and talk to our, our team, I've been asking them very specifically, tell me something good. Find me a market that has capitulated uh, mm. and show me some green shoots. And so the, the bad news is that there is not a lot of optimism and there is not a lot of indicators that are suggesting, you know, things have already turned. Um, 
So the one flip side to that is, is that we can measure investor sentiment. We can uh, measure uh, other indicators that tend to lead some of these inflationary pressures. And with a, a degree of certainty, I can say that investor sentiment, both on the individual basis and on the institutional side, is near levels that we haven't seen since the financial crisis and prior to that early 1990s. And so uh, when uh, there's an old adage in the market, buy fear and sell greed, certainly a lot of these indicators to us would be indicative that there is a lot of fear continuing out there. Very quickly and specific to your point on inflation, uh, which we hope that the Fed is looking at similar types of indicators. We do have some some early green shoots of, of optimism that those pressures are subsiding, but we do need the data sets to start to, to actually filter through and that to filter through into the real economy. I'm hearing some optimism, you know, what you're saying there. And do, I guess the question is, do you feel that they they are doing or they have done what they actually need to do to get inflation under control? I also heard a little bit of, well, you know, we don't know that yet. It's just we're, obviously we don't we never know. But we're what are you what are you seeing? What are you hearing out there? So so two things. The first thing is on interest rates. If anybody thinks that that the Fed is done raising rates, they're not. We can look at various types of probabilities and uh, likelihoods of interest rate increases between now and say February of 2023. And unequivocally, the directionality of those interest rates is higher. The data that we look at tends to be forward uh, leading indicators. So I like to use one of my favorites is a supply chain congestion index, for example. When I talked about some of those exogenous events causing pressures on inflation, um, supply chain was absolutely one of those one of those things that that really caused uh, additional um, tightness, if you will, in in the um, inflationary pressures. And so the good news is is if you forward that against um, against inflation, that supply chain congestion index, it does tend to be about a six month lead time to CPI. That's one of about four or five different key indicators that we're looking at that, again, tend to lead the actual CPI by about six to nine months. We do see a fairly clear trend that they're rolling over. And so the uh, the type of environment we're in, though, is we're in a bit of a purgatorian type of market where we, we need to sit and wait before we can ascend really to you know optimism we need the data to actually improve. And so these are these are early signs that, okay, whether it's the Fed itself's policies, um, just starting probably now to, to filter through into the economic activity, but also the cure for high prices being high prices, um, that, you know, that does slow down some of the discretionary spending, et cetera. We're starting to see some mm -hmm. of that filter through. Uh, we don't see that yet filtering through, though, into... Uh, Fed policy, and so the you know the timing of exactly when we see these pressures subside, and the magnitude are still to be determined. Uh, and so as we kind of look out over the next three, six, nine months, you know these are going to be key areas for the market that we're going to be watching, uh, in particular on the on the absolute data, but also some of these leading indicators to give us some guidance that you know. Perhaps we're not moving into the ascending into the level of of growth we had in past cycles, but certainly a, a stemming of some of the um, a volatility that we've seen in the very short term here. 
very, you know, very, doubt, very deep in what you just explained there. <laughs> uh, what it did bring to my mind a number of months ago, uh, probably earlier in the year, I, I put a video out on just the topic of stagflation. And this was sort of before we're in the times we're in now and just the, the possibility or the probability that we might be moving in that direction. And a lot of our viewers had never even heard of stagflation. And I don't want to, you know, this video is not on stagflation, but just all tied in here. Do you have any thoughts on the, the, the likelihood, you know, are we going there? I, I mean, I, I won't put words in your mouth. I'll just let you sort of answer that, Paul. <laughs> uh, I, you know, let me, I, I would take a step back just on stagflation and I'll link it into, you know, stagflation might not, uh, and, and, uh, you know, high inflation, slow negative growth for a longer period uh, versus a, a period that might be more common, uh, commonly recognized as a recessionary environment, mm -hmm. for example. Um, I don't think under those scenarios it necessarily changes the investing playbook, meaning that, you know, we, we had a debate, I remember, a fairly heated one actually in May. Uh, I think it was in May we had uh, the second quarter of negative GDP growth in the U.S. And, of course, we had the president saying, oh, that's not a recession. <laughs> and uh, technically, he is correct, um, although that's what industry and, and most participants have deemed as a recession in the past. It's technically not a, a recession. And so I think the the playbook uh, from a, a, an investment perspective doesn't really change a whole lot whether you're looking at slowing growth, negative growth, uh, and high and moderating inflation. Um, you know, in you know, in either of those cases, I think the looking for areas of the market that have some relative visibility, really being focused in in good quality, and um, of course, I'm talking on the equity side of portfolios, which mm -hmm. is where we're focused, uh, and of course, volatility is one area that we think. Um, even though it's in the shorter term, has everybody feels the volatility and it has moved higher. Uh, that's also a post-pandemic um, trend that we think is going to be structurally higher uh, going forward, meaning even as we go through the cycle, and it is a, a cycle of you know, getting inflationary pressures under control, even once we move through that, whether it's, you know, six, nine, 12, 18 months out, um, that volatility curve, because of the changing geopolitical landscape in the past, call it two, three years, we think volatility is going to remain elevated, at least, uh, at least for the intermediate term here. And that's oh, both to the, that's both to the upside. Sorry to interrupt. That's both to the upside and downside. Volatility is is two ways. So, but people should be should understand the volatility we expect would remain high uh, going forward. I always find it interesting that when, when we hear volatility, we think downside. I mean, people are are, right. um, are fearful of volatility, but you know, as sorry we know as an investor, it can be our friend because it, it goes both ways. I want to talk. I want to ask you, Paul, about something that's sort of related but a little bit different. But I just want to talk about you know in twenty twenty two so far. Uh, the U.S. dollar, uh, which is sort of tied, obviously, to everything we're talking about here, um, has risen against, I think, most global currencies. And as a Canadian investor here, obviously, there's an impact um, if we own U.S. assets and also your portfolios. I mean, you own these large multinational companies that do business around the world. So maybe if you don't mind just a minute or two, just talking about the what we need to be aware of as investors if we're going to be investing outside of our home company and maybe even specifically to your portfolios that you manage, what impact the strength of the US dollar has had, positive or negative on, on that? Great question. And currencies are a very uh, um, difficult 
um, area of the market to really predict. I guess if I were to take a step back, you know, if we go back a number of months when we had oil prices just ripping, we had commodity prices just ripping, you know, and that was also part of those uh, those higher inflationary prints, which we're starting course, people can see it at the pumps, but also in other commodity, we see them, uh, those prices subsiding. I'm quite surprised that we did not get more lift in the Canadian dollar. And so I haven't really determined exactly why that is the case in a normal, you know, a cyclical environment where commodities are, are really ripping that, you know, it didn't flow through more to Canada. Uh, on the flip side, absolutely, though, we all we all have different areas that we like to think we go to when when it is going to the fan uh and so unequivocally when we look back though the place that investors go to is the u.s dollar and so we very much have seen this on a global basis that the u.s dollar strength is you know it really it's not necessarily about canadian dollar weakness any longer uh, or relatively it didn't didn't perform as much in the uh, in the higher commodities this is about us dollar strength and when uh, the world is is unsettled um, quite often you see it in gold but more so you would absolutely see people flocking to the us dollar so what does that mean from our seat and our uh, portfolios and so most of our equity income strategies will have uh, different classes. We do leave that for investors, depending on what they're looking for. Uh, most of our, our currency um, uh, portfolios are currency hedged in the A class, unhedged, which means uh, you're more you get the movement of the dollar. Uh, and uh, we also have U.S. dollar classes for those that are looking to get U.S. dollar exposure. Uh, and so I would suggest, though, to your point, when you've had a really good move in the U.S. dollar. Uh, it doesn't mean that it doesn't continue to strengthen. And certainly as the Fed continues to raise rates, maybe that is the case. Um, but during those times, um, ex post, um, from our perspective, hedged um, tends to work better if you have a view that the perhaps U.S. dollar is going to at least flatline or uh, come off a little bit relative to other currencies. So. Uh, awesome. Yeah, I, I do find in our community that uh, you know, watches our videos, there's there's this huge interest in you know, hedging currencies, etc. And the effect in practice, I think very few people actually manage that. And um, I've always said, if you don't want to go in that route, it's OK. Just you know, go with your A series or your B series and and ride it out. And over time, as in being a long term, the decades, it tends to flatten out. But if you are so inclined, you I, I'm like you, you can take advantage and, and you know, just to, to reiterate uh, with the funds, I believe all of them, um, at least the ones I've looked at, you do have, um, you know, an A series, which is a hedged and a B series, which is unhedged. Am I correct on that? That That's correct. And uh, and quite often have a US dollar for those that want to have a Canadian domiciled asset yeah, um, yeah. that is in US dollars. We have that. But you're absolutely right. It's difficult to make the call on currencies. But mm -hmm. after big moves in the US dollar, uh, sometimes the the hedge does make sense. Um, I want to shift a little bit out of North America or just look at a more global scope and just sort of to, to sort of set the premise of what I'm talking about here or what I'm going to talk about. Uh, the world, the investment world has shrunk so much, even, you know, in the time I've been an investor and uh, everything seems to be so closely intertwined now. And of course, we're seeing that. And I'm just going to say uh, sort of generically geopolitical events. The big thing going on right now um, is, um, you know, the the conflict over in Ukraine. Obviously, um, just your quick thoughts, Paul, on on the effect that that's ha having um, globally on the equity markets. 
but specifically maybe on some of the funds that you that you manage. And a question I would have is when you look at geopolitical events, you have investments all over the world. Do you focus as you're doing your due diligence and your your analyze your analytics, I guess you'd say, <laughs> do you focus specifically on those regions or do you take a more broad uh, global view uh, when, when you're laying out your strategies? So we typically focus into companies that have global operations, mm -hmm. uh, but are listed on developed markets, predominantly in North America. That's part one of this series, and I trust that, as I said at the beginning, you got some very valuable insights out of what Paul had to say. Now, video two is going to be out soon, and in that video, we cover off geopolitical events and the role those play in investment, uh, covered calls. We cover the Fed decisions, what they've done, where they might be going in the future. We cover off black swan events, um, the overall strategies. And we're going to look at some sectors that Paul feels that at this point in the cycle right now um, are a good place to be invested. So if you're not a subscriber yet, I would encourage you to subscribe and, and hit the bell for notification because I'm, I'm sure you want to see that next video. I will put a link in the description below for both Harvest ETFs and for our Investing Academy. I thank you for watching this video and I look forward to seeing you in the next video.